The 66 laps of the 2020 Spanish Grand Prix was not for the faint-hearted. Those who were able to survive it needed awesome patience, unbridled concentration and superhuman stamina. But less about Formula 1 fans like myself who were desperately trying to stay awake during this spectacle. Let's get started. Sebastian Vettel's got it to Max Verstappen. And under braking, Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish. Adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. I can't think of anything good for this one other than Catalonia, like catastrophic Catalonia. (laughs) Or make like a a pun on Spain, like a spainful experience. Or write the word Spain, but with pain in bold. (laughs) And then just yes. Or in capitals, and then the S. No, because it's just little S P A I N in capitals. Like I actually just write that out. Oh no, no, no! A spainful two hours. There we go. Thank you. (laughs) I think I think a spainful two hours is funny. I like that. Oh, I am funny. (laughs) Okay, should we should we get this? Should we get the show on the road? Lights Let's get it. Yeah, let's. The Circuit de Catalunya has not only hosted the Spanish Grand Prix since 1913, but has also played host to F1's winter testing on a consistent basis. Despite playing an integral role in the most recent F1 calendars, the Spanish Grand Prix of 2020 saw all but three of the 19 cars who finished the race be lapped by the race leader. Despite this being only one example of this circuit's failure to create close and competitive racing, the history books of Formula 1 show a worrying trend. Did you know that over the last 10 years of F1 racing, this circuit has only produced winners from four different constructors? Six of these wins came from Mercedes, three from Red Bull, one from Williams and one from Ferrari. With this in mind, Liv, is there a case to say that the circuit to Catalonia just isn't all it's cracked up to be? Thank you, Tom. Firstly, for using stats that I was going to use. (laughs) And (laughs) secondly, for the lovely introduction. So I've been looking at the track and just a little bit of history and also a bit of a discussion about um, the debate on whether it should still remain a Formula One track. The circuit to Barcelona, Catalonia is just outside of Barcelona and it is 2.892 miles long with 16 corners. This particular one was built in 1991 and began hosting the Spanish Grand Prix that same year. It's used for testing, as you mentioned, and the Spanish Grand Prix nowadays. Drivers and teams are very familiar with it because of its constant use in testing and its, um, or the fact that it's always on the calendar. However, there are often a lot of complaints, including from presenters on this podcast, I must say, that the track is boring, and in particular with regard to the lack of overtakes possible. One article I read um, online earlier today explained that overtaking is made almost impossible due to heavy braking zones and provided and they provided evidence with the fact that Pastor Maldonado was able to win a race there because his competitors did not have the opportunity to overtake, although he was actually in one of the slower cars. I um I had an opportunity to look at some tweets about this weekend's race to gather some opinions on the track, similar to your own. Liv, and finally can, can you put on some voices? Because just for the fun. I no <laughs> What what kind of voices? I okay, so other other human okay. voices. I don't know what. <laughs> what like a man's voice? Uh, <laughs> this Spanish, this Spanish Grand Prix. 
This Spanish Grand Prix is probably the most boring and mediocre circuit in F1. No fine turns or cuts to offer some action. Um, I think slow-mo chat. <laughs> I like the fact the first one sounded a bit like Angus. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing like a northern accent, just like bloody hell, that Spanish Grand Prix. I think, I think slow more chess might be even more exciting than this very dramatic. You know what? I'm going to start that section again, and I'm not going to do accents. I think it's a great shout. I had a look at some of the tweets about this weekend's race to gather some of the opinions of the track. Someone said, this Spanish Grand Prix is probably the most boring and mediocre circuit in F1. No fine turns or cuts to offer some action. Another said, I think slow-mo chess might be even more exciting than a race at circuit to Catalonia. This is a very dramatic one here. Someone said, this track needs to be demolished. It makes races dull and today proved that with not enough overtakes. Gutted it didn't rain around lap 50. That would have made the race actually interesting. And finally... I quite like this one. A race so dull that even the winner admits he wasn't paying attention to it, which <laughs> is very true. The fact that he came like off out of the car and explained that he didn't even know it was the end. Oh, oh to be Lewis Hamilton. Anyway, that was some opinion from this weekend. And obviously that's just from this one race. And there's been years and years of racing at this track. Um, since uh, two, 2007, um, which is when they added a new chicane due to safety reasons, because it was quite a, a dangerous um, corner for, off a quick straight. They added a corner in the middle of the straight, a chicane. And since 2007, there have been 14 races, um, including the 2007 race. And 10 out of 14 of them were won by the driver who started the race in pole position. So that backs up what you were saying, Tom, and what we're discussing today about how overtaking, it really isn't possible or it's very difficult at this track. Um, if you start in pole, you're almost guaranteed to win the race, unless obviously you had a technical difficulty or an undercut or something like that. Um, in 2019, it was actually rumoured that the track would not be renewed the following year. And I think quite a lot of people were quite pleased about this. Um, but a very, very late deal was secured to keep it for this year. Um, this was obviously before Corona, but we did actually manage to have this this race with Corona as well. Um, interestingly, when the track was first used, overtaking was actually quite frequent. Um, cars would follow closely through the last two corners and then slipstream down the long straight. However, as aerodynamics became more important for F1 cars, they were unable to follow each other through that final corner due to turbulence created by the leading car. And this then made it harder to then overtake on the straight. So it could in a way, you may disagree with me in a, in a while, it could in a way be actually partly the cars and the strategy strategies that are making the track more boring. And, and the design of the cars as well. If you look at some of the positives of Circuit de Barcelona, Catalonia, because I do try and provide both sides of a story, both sides of an argument, the track has hosted some memorable moments over the years, including Schumacher's drive for second place with Benetton in 1994, Alonso's massive home win in 2006, Max Verstappen's first ever win in 2016, and an incredible battle between Mansell and Senna in 1991. And I know many, uh, I've read some journalist reviews and um, other people involved in the sport who say they have a soft spot for Barcelona. They know it well. It's almost seen as the home of F1 to many because of testing as well. Um, I, I did feel the race was dull compared to past weeks. However, I personally wouldn't go as far as scrapping the track completely. Perhaps we could al they could alternate it, use, uh, you know, using it year on year, like we suggested for Monaco a few episodes ago. 
With regard to testing, in my opinion, there should be no change. It's perfect for testing due to its location. It's pretty near all of the teams. There's plenty of teams based in the UK and the rest in, you know, around uh, Central Europe, around Italy. And so Barcelona actually provides a really good spot for all teams to access it quite easily. Um, there's a wide variety of corner types and it's really great for testing the driver and the car. Um, however, as we found, it is difficult in race format to really see the most exciting action. So I'm quite interested to hear what you guys think. Do you think that Barcelona should stay on the calendar or should it be alternated with other tracks like, I, like I've suggested? And do you agree that the cars and the aerodynamics could actually be at fault or at least partly be at fault? I don't think a Formula One race should be held at the track in which winter testing is conducted at because teams get an advantage from testing their car at the track and therefore they know how to set it up perfectly, which means we get a reduction in the amount of unexpected twists and turns at a track that we might see. And also, I think that it ruins it a bit for the fans because we know how the cars are going to perform on the day. Uh, I, I suspect, and I haven't checked this, so one of you is welcome to quickly frantically Google this. Uh, if you look at the times from, from testing, and compare that like order to the the winners of uh, in in Spain this year. I reckon you'll see Hamilton at the top, and then followed by the Red Bull and Bottas. And it won't be very different because it just never is. How how can we have a testing at a track and then it suddenly be massively different when a race comes there? So I think there's better tracks in Spain to go to, um, or or even we don't go to Spain. We go to Portugal instead. That's what we're doing this year. So yes, get rid of it and keep testing there because you say testing brilliant and then just don't hold a race there because as I say, it just removes all the unexpected brilliance, which sometimes makes a race fantastic. Um, just of note, I looked at day one of testing and you were right, it was, it was Lewis and Bottas. Day two of testing was actually <laughs> Kimi Raikkonen <laughs> um, <laughs> and Sergio Perez Funny. and Daniel Ricciardo. And then day three of testing was uh, Bottas, Hamilton and Ocon. So you're, yeah, you're pretty right. The Mercedes are definitely up there. Um, at least two, two out of the three days. They might not have even been doing a proper test on the second day. So Yeah. Oh, it, just kind of it just backs up kind of what I'm saying a little bit. It just kind of ruins it. Um, why would... Why? And this is the thing because everyone went into everyone goes into the Barcelona race and goes, ah, oh, but we we can we can have drama because of the heat on the tires, but it never happens. It's a bit like how we always go into the British race, going it could rain and it just doesn't. <laughs> um, in terms of whether the track itself, whether it's sort of the races have become more boring because of the aerodynamics, um, the development of aerodynamics that we've seen over the years. To give an example, um, pole position at the Circuit de Catalunya in 2014 in the Mercedes was 1 minute 25, whilst last weekend it was again a Mercedes but 1 minute 15. So you can see there the 10 second improvement has been over the last six years. Um, goes to show the incredible strides in aerodynamics that have been made. And whilst it, c it could be said that maybe, because we do have this problem sometimes in Formula 1 where the aerodynamics are so good that cars have to be about one and a half to two seconds behind the other one to sort of because the effect of the aerodynamics on the tires is so grave that if you go too close into the car in front's dirty air then your tires will just get absolutely destroyed and that is definitely i'd say one factor that's contributed to less overtaking i've certainly noticed myself 
in the last couple of years, um, if we compare it to say like the period of like the last two or three years compared to the start of the 2010s, the Spanish Grand Prix does seem to have seen, I mean, it's not that it ha always had amazing races, but it had a couple of decent races. As Liv said, the race where Pastor Maldonado pulled off that remarkable shock victory in the Williams, that was a, a good race from memory. It was a good battle between him and Fernando Alonso. And also Max Verstappen's first win in 2016, that was also another good battle between himself and Kimi Raikkonen. So it has had the, the ability to produce a couple of good races. Um, but yeah, the last few years especially, um, just been absolutely dominant victories by um, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes um, with literally no real competition at all. And again, even in the midfield, you haven't seen that much overtaking. Like one of the defining images for me of the Grand Prix this weekend was the cars from 7th, which was Sebastian Vettel doing his one stop all the way down to 12th, crossing the line, basically in unison on the final lap, just not being able to overtake each other for ages and ages and ages. So I'd say, yeah, in recent years, there's been more of an effect of aerodynamics and cars <coughs> and qualities, meaning that tyres are sort of, maybe, yeah, maybe tyres get destroyed more and the, the sort of the incentive to overtake isn't there if you can't get it done immediately without your tyres getting... Uh, starting to weather. In terms of the point of whether it should be on the calendar, I th I agree with Tristan in that, for me, you can't have testing at a track that's going to be on the calendar because then you get to that race later in the year. It's just going to it's just going to reflect what was in testing and teams are going to have too much um, information on it. Some of the fun sometimes on a Formula 1 weekend is when there's, for example, practice session rained out or two practice sessions rained out and the teams have less data and it makes the latter stages of the weekend less predictable. Now, if you're going to have testing for uh, four to eight days at a certain track, that just increases the predictability. I'd rather we went back to the days of... I remember there was a period a few years ago where we had Jerez, um, another track in Spain, which used to host Formula 1 races. That was um, held some pre-season testing. And, of course, they haven't raced there since 1997, so it wouldn't be on the calendar. Or somewhere like, for example, um, one that comes to mind, actually, that it's not on the calendar is maybe Dubai. There's a, a, a Grand Prix, like a Grand Prix level circuit in Dubai, which would reflect maybe some warmer temperatures and also wouldn't be on the calendar. So you wouldn't, and it, but it's still a good uh, racing facility, similar similar track track characteristics to the circuit to Catalonia. So you could so you could have that as a testing facility maybe. So yeah, I'd, I'd say that either it's got to be the circuit to Catalonia has either got to be on the circuit uh, on the uh, calendar. Sorry but not as a testing venue, or it's got to be a testing venue, but not on the calendar. I don't think you can have it both ways without the races being a bit predictable at the end of the day. Moving on now to Alpha Tauri, a team or constructors we've rarely spoken about on this podcast series so far in 2020, but that's all about to change. Alpha Tauri, formerly known as Toro Rosso, is owned by the Austrian Red Bull Energy Drinks Company. They first entered Formula 1 in 2006 as a junior team to Red Bull Racing and have remained in the sport until this very day. Despite their role as a, quote, feeder team, the constructors finished 6th in the 2019 Constructors' Championship above racing points Alfa Romeo, Haas and Williams with 85 points a final point score which resulted in them being just six points shy of Renault in fifth place after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Despite retaining their drivers from last season of Pierre Gasly and Daniel Kvyat, and now being dubbed a quote sister team to their senior counterparts of Red Bull Racing by team principal Franz Tost and head of Red Bull drivers development team Helmut Marko just before the 2020 season, 
Alfred Tauri have actually regressed in the Constructors' Championship at the expense of the vastly improved Racing Point car, with the team currently residing in 7th place with only 16 points, this being 14 points shy of 8th placed Alfa Romeo and 20 shy of the 6th placed Renault. Uh, despite this seemingly bleak picture, the Italian team have a lot to be cheerful about after Pierre Gasly finished 9th in the Spanish Grand Prix in a tightly contested midfield battle ahead of McLaren's Lando Norris and Renault's Daniel Ricciardo, despite only qualifying 10th on Saturday. Furthermore, while Kvyat was unable to score points, he was able to retain his qualifying position of 12th until the chequered flag. So, in conclusion, all in all, AlphaTauri have more to be hopeful for than not. Despite the occasional lowly qualifying place of 17th and a couple of DNFs, both drivers have shown in qualifying and on race day they've got what it takes to get good points for the team on a regular basis. As demonstrated by the fact that Gasly has qualified and finished in 7th place on two occasions, while Kvyat has also finished in 10th. But that's what I think. What do you all think? Despite AlphaTauri being set to be worse off than last year in terms of the Constructors' Championship, do you think the newly named AlphaTauri has more reasons to be cheerful than otherwise? Or am I just being far too kind on the team? I would say that they, ha they have overall got reasons to be cheerful. You, t you talk about how they, they are set to go down in the Constructors' Championship this season, but if we bear in mind that so looking at the 2019 Constructors' Championship table, um, yes, they have regressed in terms of um, bit the points they are behind Renault, but you, you have to admit that that midfield um, area which they are in has sort of pulled ahead of them now. And also the one team that were below them that are now ahead of them is, of course, Racing Point, and we know all about where, where their paces come from. Um, but in but if you look at, I guess it's it's not doesn't look too bad for AlphaTauri considering uh, the three teams below them are quite a far way below them. Like last year, even the ones below them, so Alfa Romeo, had a bit of a sort of boost at the end of the season, a good few races with points, and they kind of closed into um, to what was Toro Rosso at the time. But at the moment, AlphaTauri look definitely for sure faster than. Um, Alfa Romeo, Haas and Williams uh, Alfa Romeo, Haas and Williams between them have got three po uh, two points finishes in the first six races whilst Alfa Tauri have got five in the first six races just by themselves so I'd say it's it's maybe one of those seasons where sort of yeah I, I guess n not a massive amount was expected I guess it would have been a bonus if they had kept up their pace from last year, you've got to bear in mind as last year they got two podiums which were in very topsy-turvy races so I think maybe if they expected to repeat that it would have been quite optimistic um, but I think yeah I, I, I say overall there is more to be optimistic about for them especially as well the um, the good form being shown by Pierre Gasly who is I can't lie surprising me this year I thought that even though he had the podium in Brazil back in the last year I thought maybe seeing Alex Albon in the Red Bull seat still would um would maybe put a downer on sort of his season. He might not be too motivated, but he's come out of the block. He's done some brilliant races so far. Another very, very solid race in Spain to get ninth place. Just keeps on racking up those little points finishes. Just reminding the Red Bull bosses that he's still there and he's still possibly available in the future for that seat. Um, but yeah, I'd say Alpha Tauri overall have more reasons to be cheerful than to be perhaps looking on the the more negative side, I'd say. Yeah, no, I think I think... I agree with Angus, actually, and you, Tom, that AlphaTauri has a lot to be hopeful for at the moment, and it is going really well for them. 
And apart from, as you say, there was that, that little moment when Pierre Gasly got uh, DNF'd because of engine problems. They've had a few issues here and there. They're really, really competitive. And I love the fact that Pierre Gasly is really, really competitive with Albon because at the moment, he's his biggest competitor. I really like the fact that Gasly's going, hey, I know you've replaced me with him, but look, I'm going to fight for him for uh, positions and I'm going to try and beat him in qualifying and on occasion has done that in what is we think is the junior car. So I think and that Pierre Gasly is, is not only setting himself up well to keep impressing the Red Bull bosses, but to be honest, I think his future lies outside of Red Bull. I don't think he wants to be in that team really in the future. I think he has his eyes set on on greater things. Maybe we could be looking at a McLaren driver or maybe a Mercedes driver. Who knows? I think he's really showing that he can pick himself up and dust himself down and get some really good positions. And I'm just waiting for him to get back onto the podium because I think his time will come. I just wish he was slightly more competitive because of the car. But hey, you can't have everything. And he's still beating the second Red Bull team, um, which I think is having a bit of the opposite um, sort of thing at the moment to, to Alpha Tauri. Because, hey, their, their second car seems to be a bit cursed. Daniel Kvyat, um, I mean, look, he's he is a fast driver on his day. I know Angus described him in uh, less positive words in a previous podcast, but you know he he's a he's an okay driver. And, I mean that's it really. He's okay. But so you know they have an okay driver and a great driver and a car that performs really well. So I think they are just going to continue on this up upwards trajectory. And I think they're aiming for the moon at the moment. I would love it, absolutely love it, if um, the the AlphaTauri drivers came out. Um, ahead of Alex Album, not because I dislike Alex Album so much, just so to just screw with the bosses at Red Bull a bit, because I hate it when they um, screwed over Daniel Kvyat. You know whether or not you like them as driver or not, they still pushed him out of the team, ready for Max, and they still pushed Pierre Gasly out for Album. So I'd like them to, I'd like Avatari to stick, you know, two middle fingers up at Red Bull and say, hey, look, we have two drivers too. Because, you know, that's the kind of person I am, I suppose. So, yeah, I think they will continue on their upward trajectory. Just in case Alex is listening, I'm a massive fan, Alex. Don't listen to him. I'm um, a fan <laughs> of Alex Albon. <laughs> I'm a fan of Alex Albon. It's not his fault, right? This is what I'm trying to say. You know, um, Alex doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> it, 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 it. Completely, you know, Christian Horner and the other bosses at Red Bull, hey? Like, I like Alex Albon. And if someone gave me the opportunity to drive for Red Bull and I was driving for... Toro Rosso, then of course you're going to take it. So nothing against Alex Albon. He he did he made the right decision. He shouldn't be a martyr. But now it's time for Pierre Gasly to come flying past Albon and demonstrate to the bosses that they made a mistake. No, I do. To be honest, I do agree. I I would say that the competitiveness that we have, that the media are showing, and what we're discussing as well between Albon and Gasly is. I hate it because they're two of my favourite drivers, but in a way it's absolutely brilliant because they do bring, they clearly do bring a lot out of each other in the car. However, um, you mentioned like, you know, this recent reasonable success and positivity within AlphaTauri. I really do think it is about the chosen drivers. Like you mentioned, we all mentioned the fact that um, Pierre was brought down to that team, but I, I really do think that that's where he's best. He's co- more comfortable. I don't know, maybe that might change in the future, but at this moment in time, you can you can almost see a change in him as a person during that step down. Yes, it was an upsetting time, but 
he seems more comfortable he seems very close with the team with the engineers and happier and when you did see that podium it meant even a lot more because it they, like that they're the people who had stuck by him when he'd been kicked out by Red Bull if you know what I mean I really think that at the moment he's in the best place for him and also for the team and you know Alex is showing that fire that puts him into that other into the Red Bull seat you know it may change in the future but for now it's definitely the right choice and um yeah Pierre is impressing so much I mean after and I do agree with the fact that he is a big reason for their success and then perhaps future success um Daniel, I again, yeah, you mentioned he's an okay driver. Daniel's decent. I was disappointed to see him shove a cameraman a few weeks ago. But you know, we all, you know, they all get you know angry and um, really involved and passionate in the moments. But as a whole, they're two great individuals, and I think that is part the whole. I was going to say vibe. Then can you imagine the whole vibe, <laughs> the whole atmosphere of the team for me is is one of the reasons why they're succeeding because the pressure in the teams such as Red Bull for me isn't always the best way to produce results and you've saw that with Pierre and you're seeing it now with Alex but I think Alpha Towery and Toro Rosso in the past are is a perfect place to produce good results and good drivers and we've seen it before Daniel Ricciardo was there Carlos Sainz was there Max Verstappen was there Toro Rosso and now Alpha Towery is that place as you mentioned to like as a sister team to create those talented drivers but it's it's the place to put them when they're not quite there and it's the place to put them when they're more fragile <laughs> and I, I honestly it's the perfect choice and I do you know that take my hat off to Helmut Marco and the team for putting those drivers in those particular seats they're in right now because I agree Alpha Tauri have a positive future I think I think they could do really well I think that vibe thing that you, you said there um is absolutely key to why on the flip side of Alpha Tauri's success Red Bull is having their problems um it yes Red Bull are second in the constructors at the moment if you can, if you deduct Alex Alboy's points from uh, that he earned for the team from Red Bull Racing's points total, they are still in second place, which means it's Max who's actually keeping them in that position, and that's a horrible feeling to get. And when combined with the fact that Alex knows that Red Bull could just chuck him out at any time, which they could, they have now, they now have set a precedent for doing it. Then I think the vibes gonna go get worse and worse and just teams isn't going to go it's just not going to go as well for them so yeah maybe that's maybe that's key to the success live after all it's it's just a happy team makes happy drivers yeah you know gotta feel those good vibrations good vibes only <laughs> i do actually agree with you there a lot tristan i mean i'd even go as far to say that if albon or gasly or the second car of red bull was doing better if they were more competitive and being able to get into that top four past the likes of the two racing points. I think you'd see a much more exciting uh, drivers' championship and races this season because at the moment you've just got two Mercedes who are always going to be there, either in first or second or second or third or first and third, whatever. They're, all, they're always going to be at the top because they've got the best car, they've got the best chassis and arguably two of the best drivers, but we won't delve into that one. If you stick a Red Bull in there, in that fourth place, or someone who can consistently get a fourth place or above, you make it far more competitive, because at this point, you've got two Mercedes just at times playing with Verstappen. Verstappen can't do it all on his own. Just having one Red Bull car up there means that ultimately Red Bull are always going to come out second favourites. Um, not sure if that was needed, but you know. Yeah, guys. 40 minutes. And 40 I was going to watch seconds. TV tonight. <laughs> the 
Ten you can still yeah. do that. Oh. It's a yeah, but, loud. Yeah, you, you don't have to go to bed straight after the podcast. No, I, yeah, I know, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to watch The Crown and I was going to watch... Are we doing... number, like, anyway, that's, this is not the time. Go. What do you want to do next? But, um, I, um, wanna, I think you should do Toto Toto Wolf. next. Off to Toto. the back of the weekend. Okay, let's go. CEO and team principal of Mercedes AMG Patronus Motorsport, Toto Wolf says he is currently considering whether or not to continue in his current role after the end of this Formula 1 season. Under Wolf, Mercedes have become the most successful F1 team of all time. However, his current contract expires at the end of the year and discussions over his future with the chairman of Mercedes' parent company, Daimler, are still ongoing. Angus, what can you tell us about this developing story off track? Like you said, Toto Wolf, CEO of Mercedes, part of the uh, arguably the dream team that has helped steer Mercedes to six consecutive drivers and constructors championships. The main two parts of that dream team, or at least publicly, being Toto Wolf and, of course, a star driver, a certain Mr. Lewis Hamilton. However, like you said, his contract running out at the end of the year, and if you if you sort of look at some rumours and some events that have happened, you could say that there are question marks over his future at the team. One such event was in April earlier this year. So Toto Wolf bought shares in the car company Aston Martin, a valuation of the shares valuation of just under eight million, which he described at the time as a financial investment. Now many people saw this and thought, hang on, Aston Martin, they are rebranding the Racing Point team next season. It's going to be an Aston Martin F1 team in Formula 1. So what does this mean? Also, you combine the fact that Toto Wolff is known to be good friends with Lawrence Stroll. They both have kind of similar backgrounds, came up uh, not the not the wealthiest of families, uh, but both through their own self-made methods became very rich. Lawrence Stroll became a billionaire. Toto Wolff became a millionaire with his uh, investment company. And they've both gone into Formula 1. They're also known to be good friends, the two of them. So this sort of this investment of shares prompted some rumour that maybe Wolf might jump ship from uh, Mercedes to Racing Point, which would be a very interesting development. Another thing that happened was Wolf doing an interview in early July with FormulaOne.com, saying how he said he was contemplating his future with a very interesting comment that, um, which suggested that he would rather go out on a high as opposed to going from, quote, great to good as a team principal without realising. So you could argue based on that that maybe his <clears throat> maybe his mind is thinking about possibly uh, leaving the sport. You also take into account another thing which could be completely unrelated, but him and his wife, former Williams development driver Susie Wolf, uh, had their first child in the last uh, in the last year or two. So maybe he's thinking about maybe, maybe he's thinking about the fact that he's going to have to take on more responsibilities as a father. Maybe he's got other commitments outside of Formula One that may lead to him not being around much longer. Also, another thing perhaps is that with Lewis Hamilton, we saw that Valtteri Bottas renewed his contract. He's going to be a Mercedes driver in 2021. Lewis Hamilton, however, has not yet started contract negotiations. Now, you'd have to think that because of the, in the integral nature of those two to the team, that if one of those two was to leave the team, then you feel like the other one would follow. The sort of the relationship that is perceived through interviews, etc., is that they are, whilst they are two very different characters from very different backgrounds, they they get on very well. Their sort of their ability to gel as a pairing <coughs> is one of the reasons why Mercedes has been so successful. However, in terms of my verdict, if I had to look at all these rumours and decide 
how I would take them. I would take quite a few of them with a pinch of salt. I can't lie. I know I just listed them all out, and it's going to be open to speculation now, but the, it, it, I would still take them with a pinch of salt. In my opinion, it seems un unlikely that Toto Wolff would leave Mercedes just yet for several reasons. One, the buying of the, the stake in Aston Martin may just be another fa um, facet in the close relationship that's been st established so far between Mercedes and Racing Point. We know we discussed on, on this podcast before about the closeness in how Mercedes provide powertrain and gearbox and clearly brake ducts to, um, to Racing Point. Daimler, the parent company of Mercedes itself, owns a 5% share in Aston Martin. And it's come out and said it's satisfied with Wolf's uh, decision, which it considers a personal decision to invest in Aston Martin. It doesn't see a conflict of interest there. So <clears throat> the fact that anything there linking Wolf to Racing Point as well seems a bit far-fetched. Number two, with the point of Lewis Hamilton talking about him still not starting his contract negotiations, it could be said that that's maybe a sign that that, par that partnership may sort of may break up at the end of the year. However, Hamilton himself came out in an interview before the Spanish Grand Prix and said he himself is committed to Mercedes. He definitely wants to continue and feels he's at his peak. But he feels himself that he he's not comfortable negotiating what he called just a, a big sums of money in a new contract right now in the in the turmoil that the world's going through. He mentioned how he's not comfortable talking about all that whilst people are losing their jobs left, right and centre due to coronavirus and its effects. Some people have also been saying how there was a bit of something in the news about how basically there's this thing, for those of you who don't know, called the Concord Agreement, which is an agreement, a series of contracts which are drawn up every, say, five or six years, basically between, it's contracts between the Formula One group and the teams themselves, basically devising how rights and prize money and revenues and everything all get distributed. There was a bit of a buzz in the media about how Mercedes had been reluctant to sign the Concord Agreement for 2021 um, because they weren't satisfied with, I think it was the distribution of prize money because they felt Ferrari would be getting too much of a, of a share compared to them. Um, however, Mercedes have now come out and Toto Wolff has said he, uh, that they will be happy to sign the Concord Agreement because their sort of, not, I wouldn't say demands, but their sort of their, queer, their, their queries, their worries have been met. So in my opinion, it's unlikely that Toto Wolff would leave Mercedes just yet. However, I would say that you never know what Formula One will throw up when it comes to these kind of things. These kind of um, instances of big names departing, moving on. The one that comes to mind from a few years back was Sebastian Vettel announcing his uh, transfer from Red Bull to Ferrari. I didn't see that coming. I think very few people saw that coming. So that kind of rumour that you get sometimes that a big name may be about to leave or depart or go to another team. Whilst, Toto, for example, Toto Wolff uh, to Racing Point slash Aston Martin, it seems unlikely, but you never know. So, yeah, I was going to ask you guys, what do you guys think will happen with Toto? Will he stay or will he go? Or will he go off to another venture somewhere? And do you think there's substance to the rumours linking him to Aston Martin? Or do you think that's just the F1 media, the silly season, just playing up once again? I can completely understand why Toto Wolf is considering his future and not rushing into a new agreement with Mercedes. I mean, after all, he's been there for seven years now, and they are at the top of the top. They are on the crest of the wave of the greatness of this team. And he's got to be careful here, because if he stays along with this Mercedes team, and they, as he says, go from great to good overnight, he's not necessarily going to be remembered as the guy that took them to the top and the guy that created the best F1 team in history. He's 
perhaps going to be remembered as the individual who didn't know when to quit. So therefore, I can completely see why he's considering his future. Uh, regarding the whole buying of shares in uh, Aston Martin, that for me is a bit concerning because it wasn't too long ago that Toto Wolff actually brought shares in the team he is now a principal of, Mercedes, and then became the executive director. So it does make me concerned as a far that if you're a Mercedes fan or anyone who has any affiliation with this team, that this is the first step which then leads on to a bigger role in that team. That could just be me, um, you know, getting involved with the rumours and the drama of Silly Season, and I may well be proved right on that occasion. But as I say, yeah, it's got to be something that you look at and you could be concerned about um, looking at history. I think the day that Toto Wolff leaves, that day will eventually come, will be quite a sad day because of the personality that he brings to the sport and good sportsmanship as well. He's often is caught having chats with other team principals and chats to other drivers, for example, developing a, a good relationship between himself and George Russell. And he's a bit like, I suppose, Vessel is in, in that regard in the paddock, just an all around sort of nice guy. And on top of that, him and Nicky Lauda taking over the Mercedes team to to bring it up to its position where it is now. And if there is part of the reason why, if he does leave, part of the reason might well be the fact that he did lose his, his right-hand man. And it was evident how much that actually impacted Toto just by the way he spoke of Nicky and even put a little bit of red on the Mercedes car, which signified the talent that Nicky Lauda was in Ferrari. So maybe Toto's looking at his position in Formula 1, sees that Nicky is no longer with him, sees that the regulation changes are coming up, and sees that there's uncertainty in the future. And I suppose it's a bit like how Lewis Hamilton would only leave when he no longer start uh, continues winning. That's why Hamilton says he's at his peak, because what he means is he's at the peak of easy wins. And... I suppose I can see Toto. I could see Toto Wolf leaving now, um, or or at least the end of next year before the regulation rules uh, regulations change, just so that he does leave on the highest of highs he can possibly uh, leave on, and maybe then he will step into a position where he can help develop a team, um, because it's much easier to to leave a team at the top go into a team at the bottom when there's only one way, you know, when there's you can develop them up. Because where Toto is now, he can only go one way, and that's down. So, yeah, I could see him leaving, just to escape the uncertainty. In any sport, in any area of life, really, people like to quit whilst they're winning. You know, quit on a high, and he may, he may have seen possibly what's happening with the likes of Ferrari, and seeing the changes that are coming up in Formula 1 and some of the appeals and technicalities that are going on with the cars and maybe he's not really feeling it anymore. Maybe he's feeling as if the future isn't the Formula 1 that he wanted to be involved with and if it is a future where there's some doubt about Mercedes being on top, why, why would you want to be involved with that if you've been part of that winning winning journey? And like you say, Tristan, if he were to start somewhere new, start um, with a team and build them up, if they if that team were to then fail, there is no real disappointment in him because he was with a little team whereas if Mercedes were to fail you know that could be pinned on him and 
he I mean he is respected he's done a great job so I I can completely see the appeal of leaving leaving a job while when you're most respected and when you're you're doing your absolute best um I don't think just adding that Lewis is Lewis's decision will be anything to do with Toto's I think Lewis cares about him and they think they make a great team but I think Lewis will do what's best for him and I don't think he'll be affected really at all by where Toto is nice Cool. Should we move on? Party yes. mode. I think party mode on cars should like eject some confetti out of the, the exhaust. <laughs> is that your is that your whole pe- whole piece? Exactly. That's, that's and so like. ends another sorry. <laughs> Okay, right. Looking beyond the Spanish Grand Prix into the future of Formula One now, the governing body of Formula One, the FIA, have recently announced they'll be banning the party mode engine setting used by all teams during qualifying from the Belgian Grand Prix onwards. Tristan, what does this mean for the remainder of this F1 calendar and how might this decision affect the action we'll soon see on track? So earlier last week, the FIA notified teams that Spain would be the last race in which the engine modes in qualifying could be different to that of the race. Starting in Spa, a team may no longer be able to run their engines at a higher power setting in order to get first place on the podium before turning it down in the race once they are comfortably in the lead. This mode, dubbed as party mode, has allowed teams such as Mercedes to blow away the competition in qualifying, leaving engine manufacturers Honda, Renault and Ferrari left to compete for the next podium places. One reason cited by the FIA for the change to the rules for the mid-season is down to the ever-increasing complexity of the engines and the FIA's desire to ensure that engines are being operated within the legal limits set out by Formula 1. One example of when the FIA struggled to regulate an engine recently was with the Ferrari engine. And although we still don't know exact details of why the Scuderia's power unit was illegal, the fact that they got away with it in 2019 demonstrates that the FIA is beginning to slip in terms of its ability to scrutinise power units as they get more complex. The FIA also drew attention to Article 2.7 of the Technical Regulations, which states it is the duty of each competitor to satisfy the FIA technical delegate and the stewards that his automobile complies with these regulations in their entirety at all times during an event. And due to their nature, the compliance of electronic systems may be assessed by means of inspection of hardware, software and data. So if the FAA cannot keep up with the technical ability of an engine, they cannot really be satisfied that the F1 cars are being compliant with rules. Otherwise, teams could use deep technical tricks as smoke and mirrors in order to get around the regulations. Furthermore, the FIA drew attention to Article 27.1 of the sporting regulations, which states the driver must drive the car alone and unaided. So one might argue that the crazy party mode might be an infraction to this rule. So what does this mean for for qualifying? Well, a team like Mercedes, not much. The aero is so good this year that they could they'll really be fine. But for a team like Williams, whose aero isn't so great and needs a strong power unit, they might well get devastated. George Russell even stated that everything, the increased power, just feels like a little bit extra. It allows you to just extract that little bit more from the car, and it's just an exciting part of the weekend. I'd be disappointed to see it gone. 
So why can't teams just run the engine at full power all of the time? Well, it all comes down to wear and tear. An engine that always hits its limits will outperform other engines, but each part will degrade faster, bearings will go, pistons might crack, and more fuel is used. During qualifying, running an engine like that is fine, as it's only for a minute or so, but doing so for a whole race period would destroy the engine, not to mention also cause the car to run out of fuel. In F1, cars can bring on board up to 100 kilograms of fuel and use a max flow rate of 100 kilograms per hour. And given that an F1 race is longer than an hour, max fuel flow would mean a DNF. So this is why teams adjust the leanness of the mixture during the race. For example, Hamilton in the lead would be on a very lean mixture. That means little fuel relative to the amount of air. However, Hamilton battling against Verstappen would use a very rich mix, more fuel relative to the air. So there's a ton of adjustments on the engines during a race. Hence why the FIA's desire to start limiting this. But as much as the FIA is citing the complexity of the engines, it's probably also to do with the fallout of the Ferrari engine debacle that you can hear more about in the first episode of this podcast. Perhaps the limits to the engines might also bring the pack closer in qualifying. Currently Mercedes is all dominating in the races and qualifying, and for teams like Red Bull, even partly neutering Mercedes would be a good thing. Christian Horner said that this ban would be healthy. And perhaps he is right. After all, it is irritating having lots of engines suppliers if they aren't all as good in qualifying in the race as Mercedes. However, on the flip side of that, every manufacturer does have a party mode. So surely it's just a matter of innovation and other manufacturers needing to improve. So I'm intrigued to know what you guys think about this. Is it the right move from the FIA and will it improve the sport? Or is it just the FIA admitting that they can't keep up with the bright minds at Mercedes? It's an interesting one that they've they've managed, they've tried to uh, bring this in mid-season as well. The fact that they've suddenly sprung this upon us. Because I, I can't remember, I mean, I remember there was a time about a year or two ago when party modes were a big topic of conversation in the Formula 1 paddock, but it's been a while since I remember them being mentioned at all. So the fact they've suddenly been sprung upon us and we've been told that they'll be banned um, has come as a surprise. Maybe it is a sign that the FIA feels they can't keep up with the, as you call them, the bright the bright minds at Mercedes. I think personally it's probably a knee-jerk reaction by the FIA to what they see as a very large advantage that Mercedes have in qualifying, which is currently about seven or eight tenths over um, what's usually Max Verstappen in third. So I'd say if, if, they, if they're trying to do it just to reduce the advantage that Mercedes have, it might be successful. But at the same time, I would say that there's definitely a chance that they'd be able to think up something. like the, We've seen the Mercedes uh, team over the last well, six, seven years now across their dominance. They've always been able to find a solution to a problem and this could just be another problem where they'll find a solution. I think the one thing it will bring up is that it'll be a bit of a shame for um, Racing Point and Mercedes specifically if the, the same party modes are used, maybe not to the same extent, but if they're used on their engines as well, then it would be a big shame for, we see Williams with their slightly increased uh, standing up the up the pecking order this year, which has been brilliant to see, but this may hamper them for sure, uh, bring them back down to the bottom of the 
bottom of the pile, sadly, and Racing Point it may nullify, well, not nullify, but sort of reduce the advantages they'd gained so f- from their car so far this year. So, Liv, is this just yeah. a a targeted attack against Mercedes that's just going to screw over the little teams such as Williams because they need all the power they can get? Um, well, firstly, I'd just like to say I agree with Angus. I think it's quite odd to do it mid-season. Like, I, I do understand some reasoning, but there's so much going on right now that's confusing as hell. That It just seems unnecessary to do it right now, but I can understand like anything to level up the playing field is good. But you're right, Tristan. Leveling up the top of the playing field will also have a significant impact at the bottom. And what a shame it would be because, I mean, you know, we're all loving seeing Racing Point up there. And, and obviously adore because as we all we've made point in all of our previous podcasts we love williams in particular george russell and it's so great to see him getting that pace on a saturday you know it hasn't yet <laughs> resulted in anything on the sunday but you know they're getting there and i i do think yeah it it clearly is um an attempt to level up uh, level up the um competitiveness of the top cars so i agree with that part but have they really thought it through about the lower cars maybe maybe they've thought it through and they don't care or they don't think it's it matters that you know the effect is more important at the top of the at the top of the field but what a shame it will be i just hope that um that it won't be the case and as you did mention angus they always find formula one teams are some of the smartest and most intelligent people you'll ever find they will find a way a new way to be clever and to be and to have that extra thing over their competitors so i'm not i don't disagree with it at all in fact i'm pleased with it it levels up the playing field Am I disappointed for the for Racing Point and Williams? Yes, but I'm not going to be distraught until I've seen what happens. Um, and do I think it's an attack on Mercedes? Quite possibly, but in sort of the mildest way they could manage and also, you know, ha- trying to please as many people as they can. But just to go back to what I said at the beginning, I think it's a bit odd to do it now. I think the removal of party mode is in many ways quite a good thing. Because the danger is by having party mode, yes, it gives the smaller teams the ability to improve their project and to get the great additions which perhaps the bigger teams would have. But the danger is it creates a, a false perception between what the car can do on qualifying with party mode and what the team can do without. You're almost giving a false perception to the engineers, to the garage about what the car can do and what the car is capable of. Case in point, 2019, Haas F1. Haas were excellent in qualifying in many regards. They were able to qualify as high as fifth, if my memory serves me correctly. Now, while this is all good and dandy for Haas, going, well, look at us, we're, we're an upstart team, we've not got the backing of any serious manufacturers behind us, and here we are, in the middle of the top ten. How wonderful for us. But then when it came to race day, they were unable to keep pace with the four teams ahead of them or the six teams below them in the top ten. Now, why is this? It's because... Their chassis, their project, and their overall package is not as good as where they qualified. This means ultimately for teams like Haas and for the smaller teams which are given this boost and then taken away on race day, they're basically defending from an unrealistic position for the entire time. This has the danger of creating dangerous dangerous and boring racing at times. If you've got the wrong drivers in this poorer car desperately trying to hold on to the position they qualified in or thereabouts ultimately this stifles the better cars from getting away and competing with the very best who are ahead of this um punching above their weight team shall we say and it also results in as i said dangerous driving if a driver is 
so keen to hold on to their position and sees red or makes a wrong move in a split second this could result in a crash this could result uh in a safety car this could be various implications so with that in mind i'm happy to see party mode go and i think a more realistic and a more sustainable approach is for there to be a sort of one engine shall we say for the team one which gets a happy medium between one which is really quick and one which is durable naturally we don't want a really slow engine which is really durable and can last for five years let's say but then again we don't want an engine which can go really really fast for two races and that be it i'd like to i'd like f1 to have a sort of middle ground between the two and just have one engine because as i say the danger is you get two different performances and you ultimately or teams should i say ultimately are not aware of what their car can actually do compared to what it can do on the the steroids of f1 shall we say but tom what you're actually saying is Hass shouldn't be quick because grosjean likes to crash <laughs> uh no <laughs> no i'm not okay. <laughs> shall we uh, round up should we round up yeah okay Cool. And so ends another episode of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. We've discussed a wide array of topics today. We've talked about the circuit to Catalonia displayed at the Spanish Grand Prix. It was quite a dull race, and unfortunately, the perfect storm is upon us, where this is set to continue, many believe, although others believe perhaps not. It's, of course, also the circuit where testing is done for Formula One or has been done in the last few years. We've discussed whether testing at one circuit and also having a race is compatible or perhaps this results in more negatives than positives. Secondly, we talked about AlphaTauri, the once junior team to Red Bull, now supposedly the sister team. They are currently seventh in the Constructors' Championship, doing slightly worse on paper compared to how they were doing in 2019. We've discussed how ultimately they have more reasons to be cheerful than not. Thirdly, we talked about the CEO and team principal of Mercedes, Toto Wolff. His contract currently ends at the end of this F1 campaign. There are rumours that he will not be renewing this contract and will be leaving Mercedes under new management. We've been discussing whether or not his decision to have shares or to obtain shares in the Aston Martin Racing um, Department, which is something which could perhaps alter his decision or perhaps as an influencer of it. And finally, we talked about the end of the party mode engine setting. The FIA have stated that from Belgium onwards, we will not be having this engine in qualifying. It's yet to be seen whether or not this will have serious implications for the lineup for the Sunday race and whether or not the teams are able to continue on their current trajectory or are going to decrease or increase. It's hard to say, I guess we'll find out in due course. So thank you very much to Tristan, Liv and Angus for their expertise on a wide variety of topics. We will return next week, but there'll be no F1 action, but I'm sure there'll be multiple talking points for us to sink our teeth into. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. How was that? Brilliant, that was perfect. Yeah, a lot perfect. Better.